Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We're a church for imperfect people only. We're in our series, LA is Corinth. Because as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we see so many similarities between that city and ours. Like LA, it was a port city filled with wealth and immigration. It was a sports capital, second only to the Olympics. Like LA, it was extremely sexualized with Aphrodite as the goddess of love and her temple just outside the city. A part of worshiping her was sleeping with one of her 1,000 priestess. Lastly, like LA, the church was deeply divided along political lines. Sound familiar? And the whole time, Paul is trying to call the community of Christ to live Christian values in the midst of this culture, and it's a fight. As we walk through this letter, we are encouraged and called in the same ways to live for Jesus while living in L.A. All right, y'all. Thanks for um, having your conversations. Really appreciate it. So I'm going to cover a lot of content. It might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon. Um, And I want to start with why we don't talk a lot about LGBTQ. I think first... We're usually preaching through the Bible. There's not a lot of texts we run into that uh, open up that conversation. And also, it's not a core doctrine. So honestly, I don't go out of my way to tackle this issue. Um, And it's easily seen as a place of church division and hate speech. I was actually comforted when I looked up the definition of hate speech. Um, It talks about through speech inciting violent or hate towards a population. And I actually hope that our conversation today would make you love uh, that population more, that your heart would be more open to them, and that you would see them the way Jesus sees them. Um, I hope that that's what happens at the end of this conversation. But there are reasons why we do need to talk about it. So primarily, if the church doesn't form our theology on sex and gender uh, and sexuality, everyone else will, right? Netflix, social media, the music we listen to, has a lot to say about sexuality and gender. And so as a Christian, I really hope, and as your pastor, I really hope I can help you understand theology from a biblical perspective. The second reason is that we are on this passage. As we go through 1 Corinthians, it's brought up. And I don't feel comfortable bringing up this, com- this topic, like, haphazardly. I'll, I will not throw it into a sermon um, because it carries so much baggage with, with it and and terrible baggage. And so if we're going to talk about it as a church, we're going to talk uh, about it pretty comprehensively. If we, if we do need to define Renew's position on this, um, and I think for most of us, we understand. Um, if you've been here long enough, if you cared enough to ask, you know that we take a, a conservative view on marriage. But I think we have to speak beyond that. You know, We have to talk about tone and, and care and nuance how we're reaching out and loving this community, but also for integrity and transparency. I understand some of you, this is a primary uh, issue for you and how you decide to go to a church or not. And so I don't want you to feel like we're hiding something or we're, or, or we're being amb- ambiguous uh, when we actually have a position. Uh, I hope that you'll listen to the rest of the sermon, but I understand if this is an issue that disqualifies our church from being your home. Lastly, we have a lot of apologizing to do. You know, when I think about the church um, and how we have treated through in history um, the LGBT community, it has been hateful. 
there has been a lot of hate speech, uh, abuse, isolation, and um, violence. And that's something we need to own in our history as a church. You know, I hope that 30 years ago when hating people in that community was widely accepted, especially in the Christian church, um, and culturally, because the AIDS epidemic was spiking, people were really afraid, and they blamed the LGBT community. Um, at that point, the church believed it was a sin, but they treated them terribly. I hope that if I was pastoring in that context, I would have the courage to tackle the treatment and the, and the abuse of that community as a pastor. I hope that that would be my core message. I think today we... Um, have a lot of empathy for that community, especially our church. Um, we, we, we care deeply, I think, most of us for that community, but we are confused about the theology. And so it's taking courage for me to talk about the theology of it, but I want to do that faithfully as well. The next picture is of Aphrodite. So we are in the book of Corinthians. Um, and Aphrodite is the goddess of love, as Pastor Dave shared about. And Corinth... For me, I chose this book because of how much Corinth resembles L.A. It was a port city, a lot of immigration, just like Los Angeles, full of um, wealth because of the commerce there. People love entertainment and sports, and L.A. is the entertainment capital of the world. We have two of every sports team. But the primary reason why I chose Corinth is because Paul is asking the Corinth church to live a very specific sexual ethic in a society that made L.A. look like Oklahoma in terms of sex. Their Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. Right outside the city, there was this huge hill where her temple stood, and they had a 1,000 prostitutes there. And think about worshiping that as your main god in the way that permeated all of society, right? Uh, I don't know. This is probably not supposed to be funny, but... So I'm going to try not to smile. But imagine telling your wife, oh, I'm going to go worship. You know, I'm going to go to church. And then, you know, you go sleep with one of the prostitutes. Like the ultimate excuse to commit adultery, right? And even, even Las Vegas doesn't have a space where you can just go and have orgies. So just really kind of conceptualize this in your context as a married person, as a young adult. Instead of going to Disneyland, you go to her temple and you sleep with people. I mean, this is like totally permeating throughout their society. And in that context of sexualization, in that context where anything goes, Paul is calling people who decided to follow Christ and decided to live in another culture, in another kingdom, to be different. And I think that's actually a really important understanding for how Paul addresses the church. In the passage uh, Dave preached on, uh, Sorry, I think it's chapter 5, verse 12. It says, what business of it is it of mine to judge those outside the church? But are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. I think one of the grossest missteps we've uh, committed as Christians is that we've taken this issue and we've judged people outside the church. Think about all the disgusting uh, t-shirts and banners Christians have put in front of others. That's actually breaking this passage because they're trying to judge people who are outside the church. And Paul's like, that's not our business. Why would they commit to our sexual ethics? You know, I think about um, if a Muslim uh, came into our church and said, all of you women have to wear a hijab, hijab, hijab. 
and you're like, why do I have to wear a hijab? I'm not Muslim. And they're like, well, it's part of our religion that you have to wear a hijab. And you'd be like, but I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't succumb to your text, your religion. I have, I have no allegiance to it. I think that's how people feel when we walk up to them and tell them to commit to Christian sexual ethics. We're basically telling them, hey, go wear this headdress because it's part of my religion. It makes no sense to people. And again, I don't believe that that's our calling as a church, as a Christian, as a community. And it's actually very much against what Paul is saying. What business is it of mine to judge people outside the church? But people who do believe in the Bible, who have aligned their whole life to Christ, they're including their gender and sexuality, including what marriage is, my question to you then, I'm not speaking to those who haven't made that commitment. And many of you are in this room, you haven't made that commitment. So you don't have to come under this presupposition. But if you did, if you did make that commitment, my question is, is the Bible omnivorous? Does it have anything to say about sexuality and gender? Does it have anything to say about marriage? And if it does is what it has to say, the supreme truth and story in your life. Is the story of the Bible eating all the other stories that we hear? Is the truth of the Bible eating all the other truths? Because when I see um, liberal Christians make arguments for um, other forms of marriage, most of the time what I'm seeing is people basically saying this story has more credence than the story of Scripture. Or my story and experience has more credence than the Bible. Or the Bible is wrong about that. I'm just going to take a pen and cross things out. I mean, that's a very blunt way to say it. But I've read a lot of arguments, and I just see them doing a lot of gymnastics through the text. So I'm going to present the text in a certain way. But I think it's the most true and principled way to read Scripture. It's the, close, it's the closest to the author's intent. And if you are a Christian and you've submitted yourself to Scripture, would you listen to this argument? And if you disagree, would you argue through Scripture um, your convictions? Because that should be our, our baseline of conviction, right? So we actually go back to Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are these really unmovable foundations of the Christian faith. Because it's the way God designed the world to be before sin. It shows us the prototype, the archetype of the earth and how it's not supposed to be ridden with disease or it's not supposed to give in to famine. What we plant grow, we thrive, we don't just try to survive. Our relationship with God is unbridled. We walk with him in the coolness of the day, face to face, holding hands. Our relationship with each other are, are totally um, unguarded because people don't hurt each other. They only have good intentions for each other. And so this is God's way of making the world before sin came to corrupt it. And in these first two chapters, I would suggest that he had a lot to say about his ideals for biblical marriage. First, it says that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. So I know we're using a lot of they language. Uh, we talk about gender as, you know, possibly like ancient and and not really useful, um, that we could be asexual. But if you have a biblical perspective, God creates humanity with uh, separate 
genders, and binary. And secondly, he says to fill the earth, uh, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. In the next slide, he says, then the, um, the Lord God made a woman from the rib, from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. So here we have God um, marry the first man and woman and give us, again, an archetype of what marriage looks like if, if you're a believer of Scripture. And so in the next slide, here's a very bare-boned concept of marriage, right? It's um, a man and a woman, so there's a gender aspect to biblical marriage. A male and female, he created them. There's a numeric value of two, so it's not two men and two women, it's one man and one woman, the numeric value of two. And we talked about how he brought her to, to the man. And then, thirdly, and then thirdly, there's a commitment where the man leaves his father and mother and is united with his, life, uh, with his wife, a lifelong commitment. And we see these concepts reinforced throughout the rest of Scripture, whether it's Levitical law, the way Jesus talks about marriage, or Paul. Now, you do see polygamy happen in the Bible, in biblical heroes like um, David and Solomon. So, that, so you never see the Bible um, um, give permission or space for homosexual relationship. But you do see the Bible create space for polygamy uh, in, in some of our biblical heroes. And I, my response to that is you see the narrative of their family unfold and it's complete chaos. There's rape. There's people disowning each other. Um, and I think through the narrative of scripture, we have a commentary in which God is dissenting polygamy. And also when he talks about it explicitly, again, um, in Genesis, in the Levitical law, in Jesus' commentary on marriage, it's never um, polygamy. It's always one man, one woman. And um, lastly, there's this uh, call to be fruitful and increase in number. And I think when you look at marriage and sex in the context of reproduction, um, there's only one way that humans reproduce. It's amazing to see a baby come to life, and it's not with three people, right? It's, it's not with two men or two women. And so for God to create biblical marriage, it's evidenced in um, the ability to have children. And I think, again, it just sounds terrible to say that for some reason, but I also feel like um, it's something we can neglect. His commandment to be fruitful and increase in number is really tied to this very specific biblical construct of marriage. And in terms of raising kids, being lifelong exclusive partners uh, or married, I think is, uh, obvious, is obviously God's design of how kids should be raised. Not that you can't be a very healthy adult with a single mom or in a blended family. Not that a, a single mom or a single dad... In, or a blended family can't be amazing parents, but when you look at the world in an untainted uh, archetype, um, you know, that's what I think is what's going on. Okay, next passage, verse 9. So here's, here are we in 1 Corinthians. 
Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, uh, nor idolaters, nor men who have sex with men. So here, um, I just want to point out that there is a deception um, in their culture and in ours. And if you look at the next slide, here are the very popular arguments uh, for gay marriage. And honestly, it's very appealing to me. Uh, God made me this way. Love is love. It's my choice. Uh, I'm having a consensual, even lifelong relationship. And um, it's my choice is absolutely true. If you, you know, aren't Christian, you have no reason to have this view of marriage. And I think non-Christians are really challenging all of these constructs, not just the one on gender. And I think they should, because why are they beholden to any concept of marriage as it stems from the Christian faith? Um, no one wants to raise their fist that love is love, right? When I see the filter or the, the billboard, I'm never like, love is not love, right? Like that just, that doesn't feel right. But I guess if I were to play devil's advocate, um, and maybe you have a response, I would love to hear it. I would say that if we take these phrases uh, or principles and values and apply them to gender, I'm not sure why it would be exclusive to the gender argument. Meaning like, I don't know why these phrases would not be just as applicable to the numeric value of two, right? Like God called me and I feel created to be a polyamorous. Um, that's how I view love and express it. We shouldn't cap it. Um, love is love. So if God made me that way and I have the capacity to love more than one, why can't I do that? And it's my choice and of course it's consensual, right? So I've watched videos of people having a marriage with four or five individuals. And I think, you know, all of these arguments, I feel like fully apply to that. Or having a lifelong exclusive relationship. Um, why can't, why, why don't these principles apply to that? You know, if me and my wife want to be swingers and we're like, hey, we're fully committed to each other, but why should we exclude other people from the loving relationship that we have? Why can't we invite people into this wonderful marriage for a day or a month or a few years and believe that God made us in a way where we have these, this open heart to other people for marriage and, and sex and that love is love. Uh, we're giving love to our person. It's our greatest gift as a married couple to share a sexual experience of love with someone else. It's my choice. It's consensual. Okay, so not necessarily a biblical argument, but I think once we um, take these principles, which if I am non-Christian, make total sense, I would totally believe it. Uh, why wouldn't I? I just think that Christians who advocate only for gay marriage should also advocate for all these other expressions of love and marriage as well if they're using these principles. Um, and of course, if you have any arguments against these, against this <clears throat> this um, concept, I would love to hear it. Next slide. Or do you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor um, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. So how I see this, these words, um, sexual immoral, adulterers, and men having sex with men, are really just antithesis or... Um, the counterexample of the principles of biblical marriage. So if you look at the next slide, 
we have um, in biblical marriage, you know, a man marrying a woman. And so the opposite of that, that Paul's pointing out, is same-gendered sex, right? And um, the number two, the opposite of that would be orgies in Galatians chapter 5, 21. So really it's, it's just, um, it's not, I don't think Paul is trying to just say, like, homosexuality is the worst. I just think he's trying to put a counterpoint to all of the principled uh, b concepts of biblical marriage. When you look at sexual immorality, it's, a, it's almost like this umbrella term that is anything outside of uh, the biblical definition. Adulterers, uh, again, in that prior passage, is, is a counterpoint to a lifelong exclusive relationship. And when you think about sexual immorality, right, we look at all kinds of um, heterosexual sin, uh, like adultery or pornography or looking at a woman lustfully. And I don't think there's, I don't think that the gender violation is any worse than the two violation is any worse than the long-term exclusive commitment violation. That all of these violations are the same in the way that it's breaking God's uh, ideal for biblical marriage. So on the next slide, homosexuality is a sin like all the other sexual sins of the Bible. And my challenge to the Christian community is, do we see the gay community as fundamentally different than our own brokenness? Who of us have not committed any of those sins? And so we are, we are all in the same plane of sexual brokenness. Jesus calls us to reach out and love the lost. He would hang out with gay people. Um, we are to extend love, relationship, and the gospel to them. Next slide. So when I look at this passage, one of my favorite stories, John chapter 8, verse 4 to 11, it, in the most early transcripts, we don't have this passage. It's kind of been scribed in a little bit down the road. But we, a lot of scholars believe that it was trans, um, given orally um, outside of maybe the original writings, and then they put it into Scripture, which is kind of tricky. It happens a few times in the New Testament, twice. Um, and then in the Old Testament, there's some, like, scribe writing as well, like when Moses writes. Uh, yeah, we could talk about that later. So in this passage, um, the Pharisees bring a woman up to Jesus as he's in the middle of talking in front of a crowd. And he says, this woman is caught in adultery. And the Mosaic law says to stone her. And they were trying to trap him because he could either affirm the Mosaic law and stone her, which would be breaking Roman law. You have to go through the Roman judicial system to execute someone. Or he could break the Mosaic law and not stone this woman. So that's the trap laid before him. And what Jesus does over and over again is he just bends over and he writes on the ground. And they ask him again, and he's just writing on the ground, on the dirt with his finger. And they're not sure why, so they get more angry. They ask more violently. And then he says this. All right, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and wrote on the dirt. Then the accusers, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one beginning with the oldest. You know, there's a lot of theories on what Jesus is writing on the ground. It's not said explicitly. But some scholars say that he's writing women 
that these Pharisees have fantasized about, the names of these women. Other people say that he's writing all the other sexual sins. And one by one, these Pharisees put down the stone and walk away. And when I look at the history of the Christian church, we were the Pharisees who dragged people in that community in front of the church and said, let's stone them. <clears throat> with um, shame, with accusation, with isolation, with violence. It would just be, it would be as much, it would be the same story. What he says to these Pharisees is what he says to us. Let he who has not, has not sinned throw the first stone. We, then Jesus tells her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? All of them walked away. And she said, no, Lord. And she said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We, we shouldn't just put down our stone and walk away. We should walk up to where she was in front of our Savior and said, I've done the same. I'm broken too. And I get this. I share pretty openly about my sexual addiction. And when I look at someone from that community, I see all of us broken and needing the Lord. I don't see myself any better than anyone else with brokenness. I hope that if we are reaching out, we could be like the Lord. He doesn't say she didn't sin. But she, he also definitely anti-hate speech, disarming others and receiving her. I just want to talk a little bit about how we could do this practically. How do we love non-Christians in the LGBTQ community? Well, first, be their friend, share life with them, and treat them like any friend you have that's not a Christian. I hope that's simple enough for you. And I just think, again, we feel, I feel like people are, uh, Christians are scared, and they're scared of us, honestly, a lot of them. Um, maybe they're angry, afraid. Maybe they're just angry. Maybe they're withdrawing. And we have been afraid as well. And how do we see them like we see us, like we see others? And I would say possibly sidestep LGBT issues. Uh, that's what I do with my LGBTQ friends, at least for the first, like, I don't know, year of our relationship. Um, and, and I think about it this way. Like, all of my friends are sleeping with someone if they're not married. All of them. Or watching porn. Or probably both, right? And so, like, I'm hanging out with all my non-Christian friends, playing volleyball, drinking beer, having coffee. Am I going to sit with someone who's a non-Christian and be like, man, I hear you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. Is that my agenda for coffee? Is my agenda for coffee with my non-Christian friend, like, can you stop watching porn? 
And of course not. We're, we're hanging out. I'm trying to build a relationship. I'm trying to care for them. I'm trying to have them see me as a friend. Um, and for some reason, there's this impulse for, for some Christians who sit in front of someone who is LGBT feeling like they have to go and change them. Feeling like this has to be the thing they bring up. Feeling like they have to put their position in front of them. And if you're not talking to all of your other friends about sleeping around and watching porn, why do you feel compelled to do that with your friend who's LGBTQ? I, there is a level of acceptance and tolerance we extend to the non-believer. They're not beholden to um, this culture within a broader, broader culture. I think if they ask you, answer in a way that's rational from their perspective, okay? When I have friends who, I have a friend, um, we played volleyball for many years. We joined a tournament together. We're hanging out with his friends at a bar with other volleyball friends, and they're gay, and so I hang out with them. And they're like, and you know, one of the guys is like hardcore hitting on me. And my friend's like, he's a pastor, he's straight, he's married, he has a child, you know. And the guy's like, oh. And then we hang out for two more hours. And we don't talk about it. Um, but, but my friend has asked me because of our relationship, hey, what do you think about, you know, my sexuality? And I kind of tell him an abridged version of what I told you. I'm like, dude, Christian ethics is, it's a lot. And, it, and I'm breaking it as, I break it too. Like, I struggle with pornography. I think about other women. And, and we're all broken. And this is just kind of one of the things that we feel like um, is something God wants to heal in our lives and forgive. And that's the only difference. It's like I see my brokenness um, and I, I'm asking for forgiveness. And I want to come under another way of life. And I hope that, and I think like if they're your friend, they're not trying to lose relationship with you. You know, we have these really crazy heated conversations online. But if, you, if they actually feel like they like you and want to be your friend and you know each other for a while, they're just as scared to bring up the topic as you are. Like they're just as hesitant. They're just as worried about the relationship breaking because in their minds, you know, all they see on media is like Christians who are flaming them. And they're just like, man, I hope I don't get torched. And when you aren't an idiot, it helps. Okay, so next slide. Um, which I don't think anyone in this room is. How do we love Christians who um, are in that community? I think uh, a lot of people see gender and sexuality as either fluid or static. And so, and I would say for most children and teen, they have, teens, they have a fluid um, experience of sexuality. Like my son, he's asexual in the way that he doesn't see women in a romantic way. He's four and a half. And then it's developed, right? So that's why I lumped them in together. Um, I think people who have a fluid experience of gender and who are Christian and, you know, desire to um, live out that view of sexuality and, and marriage, <clears throat> maybe come under our church and pastorship. If, and it might take a long time. It might never happen. But let's say they come under that. I would say, hey, let's cultivate healthy gendered relationships while celebrating their unique exp uh, expression of masculinity and femininity. People who um, feel that tension often have felt really isolated from other people of their same gender, whether men or women. Maybe, the, maybe they're a man who's super um, sensitive, and I'm, I'm more sensitive than not. 
maybe they're really artistic. And they're like, man, when I grew up, I just never, people called me gay. People left me out. People, um, I hated my, my version of masculinity. And we have a very toxic view of masculinity in our society. And, and I think what we can do better is say, you're a man and you can express your masculinity in a lot of different ways, but you're still a man, you're still a woman. And how do we bring them into those relationships as, as fellow men and women? How do we develop healthy sexuality towards the other gender? How do we celebrate the God-given gender and sexuality of the person instead of having contempt for them? How do we say that just like God made your ethnicity with purpose and design, he also made your gender that way? And we want to celebrate that gender with you. Um, and we want to see the way that God's cultivated gender, uh, your gender in a unique way, including them in service and community. How do we love Christians who have a more static experience of gender and sexuality? Um, I think there is a challenge in their sanctification process to um, live a celibate life for the Lord. And I just want to recognize that, man, God calls everyone to deny, their, to deny themselves and follow Christ. Pick up their cross and follow Christ. You know, I'm often denying my sexual impulses. Um, all of us probably feel sexually repressed in order to follow Jesus. But the person who's gay or who has a static uh, experience of their sexuality, that cross is a lot heavier than the one we carry. Calling someone into celibacy is an enormous ask. It's asking someone to be a missionary and to sell their home. And, you know, it's the a, it's a ask of a persecuted church who leaves their home to become refugees because they won't deny their faith. It's like that. We don't get it. We don't understand it. And if we don't have empathy for it, it's a cross that is, is enormous. And instead, I think, how do we carry the cross with them? How do we recognize that this cross is really heavy and that we are to be a church family for them um, who are single? We are to extend community and friendship and acceptance to them and bring them in instead of always having them feel left out. We're called to carry the cross with them. I want to tell two stories before we close our time. One is of Beckett Cook. He was a really big name in Hollywood. I forgot whether he did makeup or fashion, but he would, you know, eat, drink, and hang out with all the big wigs. He was uh, very much into the gay culture and lived that whole lifestyle as a non-Christian. And then um, and did a bunch of drugs. He shares about this in his book and um, Facebook messages. I would love for you to listen to it. And um, he became Christian. He felt super empty. He did everything you can do at the highest level in the world. And he just felt so empty inside. So he's sitting in a coffee shop. And this, he meets this random Christian who shares Jesus with him. And he gives his life to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who fills him beyond all of the relationship and drugs and fame and money that he's ever had. He gets completely cut off, excommunicated from the Hollywood world. But the way he describes uh, his sexuality is that I, will all, I think I will always be attracted to men. I don't think I'll ever be attracted to a woman. But I'm choosing to live a celibate life because my love for Jesus and my relationship with him takes so much more precedence than any other relationship I can have. Why would I have a relationship with this other person that hurts this relationship that I prioritize so much more? And he just describes 
his love for the Lord and the cross that he carries because of his decision to become Christian. And then I think about another friend. Uh, she's actually in our community. I asked her permission to share and to share every part of the story. She, her story is that she grew up and about freshman year of high school, she joined a, a sports team. And like being a lesbian was like a really big part of that culture, uh, exploring being a lesbian or just feeling drawn to that. And she felt drawn to that as well. So she experienced a lot of same-sex attraction, believed that she was lesbian for a while, uh, never like fully acted out, but just was drawn to it. And then she became a Christian and, and really wanted to follow Jesus. She went to um, a, a community that really kind of helped direct her sexuality because she was more fluid. And she wanted to kind of uh, point her sexuality towards men, which she had already, she had that attraction as well. So as she was doing that, there were other times in her Christian life where um, Christians were telling her, hey, like, just be you. Like, be fully gay. That's the way God made you. And that was actually extremely damaging to her who was trying to live and, and shape her uh, sexuality towards the Lord. Later, she got married. Uh, again, she's a part of our church. And she would say that, that, that um, she had a, a fluid view of sexuality and, or experience of it. And because of the community of Christians who are actually non-affirming, who was saying that it's a sin and we want to walk with you towards Jesus, that she found healing and redemption. You know, with Beckett Cook as well, it's because of a community of Christians who loved him and brought him into community but still said this is a sin, but we, we're all sinners. We're all messed up. And how do we fight our sin to have a relationship with the Lord? He accredits them to the relationship that he has with the Lord. So I just... I know it's a hard position to take. I know that we're going to get hate, probably both ways. But the privilege I have as your pastor, why I didn't invite another seminary professor to share about this, is because I get to give voice to how our church is shaped theologically and in, the way, in our treatment of others. And I feel like after seven years, this is where I've kind of landed. This, this position that I've always held um, not to, like, demean one sexual experience, but to just lift up the biblical view of marriage over everything else. And that's what I think the Bible does. But also say, I'm a sinner with everyone else. I need uh, the blood and forgiveness of Christ like everyone else. And I believe in his, in his redemption and his healing. And so today, I want us to spend some time in communion and, and to say, God, how do I need the cross? How do I s kneel next to the adulterous woman, next to uh, the person who's lived a gay lifestyle, and say, I'm with you in need of the Lord as we take communion together this morning? And then also, how is God calling us to love those in the LGBTQ community? And it's really different. If they're non-Christian, we love them in a different way than if they are Christian. And um, I hope that this message would help us do that well. Father, I come to you this morning, and um, man, we know that your, your truth is powerful, 
and wielded in the wrong hands, extremely damaging. And we've seen that happen over and over again in the history of the church. But I pray that this morning and in our community, you would give us gentle hands. You would give us the hands that you had as you held this woman, as you asked people to put down rocks, as you invited her into your kingdom. Hands that had nails driven through them to pay for her sin. Give us those hands as we handle truth. Give us those hands as we handle the people in our life who feel marginalized and isolated and hated um, by Christians. Help us to do that well, God. In Jesus' name, amen.